Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast, a ministry of Emmaus Bible College. Each episode is taken from a chapel message given here at Emmaus. For more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. Well, good morning. How are you guys doing? That was that was better than I expected. Usually, I was asleep at this at ten thirty-five and on a on a weekday. I, I did attend a Bible college a lot like yours. I got a, I've, I've had the opportunity and the privilege to come on campus several times. I've eaten your food here. It is, I don't know what your opinion of it is, but I would, I would encourage you, be grateful for what you have. Uh, ours was one step above dog food when I was an undergrad. Yours is fantastic. So thank you for feeding me well every time I'm here. I'm excited to learn about the work that uh, Emmaus is doing in, in your lives. And, and I love that I get to interact with so many of you uh, that, that call Crossroads home, even if it's for a short period of time while you're studying for a handful of years uh, if, you're not, if you're not from Dubuque. So I'm honored to be here. Brooks, I appreciate very much the, the invitation, and, um, I, I, and thank you for the introduction. I am, I've been married 16 years. I met my wife uh, at Bible College. I went to Shorter as a, a Southern Baptist school in the North Georgia mountains, and I intended to be a music major. I wanted to serve as a worship pastor and God called me this summer in between my senior year and my freshman year of college and, and called me into ministry. So I studied ministry there. Uh, I, I met my wife uh, doing cheerleading. I was too small to play football at the college level, and I thought there were a lot of really cute girls trying out for cheerleading, and I said, you can sign me up for that. And it worked out really well. Got a wife out of it who loves Jesus as well. She has served alongside of me in ministry ever since we were in college. So when I was your age, I was usually leading worship at a camp in the summertime or preaching or doing Disciple Now weekends, and my lovely bride was there with me, poured into girls, and the Lord has blessed us with three girls of our own. I don't tell them this. I pray for boys each time, and because when the dating scene comes, I wanted an older brother to physically intimidate the guys that she was dating because as a pastor, that's frowned upon if I do it. Um, but I was going to delegate that authority to my son, and I didn't get any of those. I have three daughters, so pray for me. I have no idea what I'm doing, and I'll need, I'll need your prayers. I, um, I feel, I'll be honest, I feel probably a little intimidated to preach here at a Bible college. I, see, I crammed a four-year Bible degree into five and a half years of study, and, and one time the, the, the school told me that I had to do better, and then when I didn't, the school told me I had to take a semester off and, and basically, they sent me to my room and told me to think about what I was doing. And I was a really, really poor student. I was a really poor student. My first two years, I carried a 2.0. I took Hebrew, because uh, I was a Christian ministries major. I took Hebrew, and I failed it big time when I took Hebrew. So any of you guys in biblical language classes right now, I'll pray for you, especially if you are. I failed Hebrew big time, and I went back to the dean's office and uh, they sent me to the provost, and he had served the majority of his career as a pastor, and he pulled me aside, and he said, why should I let you back into the school? He goes, I don't care if FASPA will give me more money to study here. Why, why would we let you back in? And I told him about my passion, my heart for ministry, and he really challenged me in my studies. He said, there was a time when the pastor used to be one of the most educated men in town. And he goes, it's not going to fly for you to just aim for C's. And he goes, you need to do better. And he goes, and as a college, we'll walk with you in that. But I got convicted for the first time in my studies. I had done everything that's up until that point on passion and talent and energy, and I really had never dug into it. He goes, if you're going to take this word seriously and you're going to rightly divide the word of truth, 
and, then, and we're going to issue you a degree, then you need to do better. And it was the, the kick in my pants that I needed. I studied really hard. Luckily, my wife was an English major, so my, my GPA went up when she started editing my papers for me. If you're making C's right now and you're getting marks off on syntax and structure, you need to go hang out with the English department because they know what they're doing and, you know, get some help. But I, I got convicted of that, and it launched me into a different mindset of ministry. And, uh, I, you know, I did end up doing the seminary thing, and I had a lot of success at seminary. God had straightened me out by the time I, I went to study at the graduate level. But I don't really see myself as much of a scholar. There's a lot of you that if I was in class with you, even now with my master's degree, you'd probably smoke me on some of the, the lessons, and I'd get a 98 and be proud. You'd get a 99. And I don't see myself as that way. I, here's how I see myself. I, I am a beggar that is telling other beggars where they can find bread. Like That's been the heartbeat of my ministry is like because I realized when I studied this word and God encountered this into my life, and he redeemed me from darkness into light. I didn't have anything to do with it. It was prompted by God. It was initiated by God. It was sustained by God. And it's still sustained by God. And so when I think about, like, man, there's, there's so much in me that, like, sometimes I, my sin nature creeps out. And I want to take credit. And I want eyes on me. And I want, you know, we all want our due respect. God continually reminds me. He's like, you're really just a beggar. And I've showed you where the bread is. John chapter 6, Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I've shown you where the bread is. And your job is to tell other folks where they can eat the bread. It's not about you. And that was a humbling and freeing experience when God kind of put that into my heart. So here's what I know. I know that on December 16th of 1993, I was in darkness. And on December 17th of 1993, when I gave my heart and my life to Jesus, I stepped into light. So that's kind of who I am. And that's what I'm about. And that's, that's where I am. I'm just, I'm just a simple preacher that grew up in Georgia. And I'm probably going to rattle you a bit. I don't know what the normal tone is of this. I will risk being undignified to preach with a little bit of passion this morning on, on Matthew chapter 9. This is something I see. And if I were to say there's, there's a, a great chasm in the church, there's a, there's a great void, a great need in the church. It's an understanding and more, than, more so than an application of this passage. I'll read it again for you quickly. Uh, it, just, it says, Jesus traveled through all the towns and the villages of that area. I'll pause for just a second. If you're not familiar with Matthew chapter 9, really 8 and 9, uh, Jesus is really in the heartbeat of his ministry at this point. And he's doing all the really cool stuff, right? He's preaching, he's healing, he's casting out demons. I mean, he's in the midst of it. So when it says, Jesus traveled through the towns and the village of the area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, that, I mean, that is a very concise way of saying, man, he was getting after it. I mean, Jesus was in the heartbeat of his ministry here, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. I love that word. He had compassion on them because they were confused and they were helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is great. Other translations might say the harvest is plentiful. But the workers or the laborers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. And I don't, know, I don't know exactly what that looked like, but here's what I envision, that Jesus is in the midst of his mission. He's surrounded by people, and I don't know how big the crowds were. Your professors probably can estimate that better than I can, but I, I just imagine him in the midst of the town square, and he's, he's, he's healing, and he's outside the synagogue and on the steps, and he's seeing all these people, and he has this moment where, like, man, he's moved. The Bible says he has compassion for them because they're confused and they're helpless, 
You know, and if, if you're familiar enough with the scriptures, and I know if you study here that you're not, you're not a novice, you're probably a bit familiar with the scriptures, the disciples didn't always understand this. A lot of times, the, I like to call it like big-timer syndrome. If you ever meet a lot of big shots that have big-timer syndrome, like they're too cool to talk to you, and they won't spend time with you, and they won't relate to you on their level because they're a big-timer. I think there is times where the disciples, we see that like, they really wanted to make Jesus a big-timer. Like they, 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 sometimes they're like, well, you, know, you, don't, you, don't need, you don't need access to Jesus. And Jesus is usually rebuking them in those times. Jesus didn't see himself as a big-timer. He looked around at the lost people whose lives were an absolute mess. Not that we're perfect, but the lost world has no hope. And he sees them, and the Bible says that he has compassion on them. Not condemnation, not judgment, not cruelty. He didn't didn't come to put a finger in their face and tell them how terrible they were. He had compassion for them. And it's a really cool teaching moment. He says, the harvest is great. It's plentiful, but the workers are few. I've been in vocational ministry for, I don't know what it is, 17, 18 years, something like that, a long time, basically right out of Bible college, I went into vocational ministry, and I have seen churches do the turf war thing, where we're fighting over the same sheep, and I I grew up in the Atlanta area, and basically the way it works is whoever has this, back in the early 2000s, like the spikiest hair and the loudest music was the coolest church at the time, and they would get all like the people and then, like, someone, and five years passes, and you guys don't know this yet, but it will come really soon. You will not be the youngest person on staff or in the room for very long. That goes a lot faster than you think it will. And then the younger, spikier-haired, cooler church comes along, and then the crowd would migrate over there. And I've watched churches fight over the same group of people, and th- what are we going to do? You know, the, the cool church down the road has just stole all of our people. I think it's a ridiculous statement when churches make that. Because Jesus, we're not talking, we're not even talking, you know, this is not some ancillary study. This is not some tertiary source. This is Jesus. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords saying, hey, by the way, the harvest is plentiful. There's plenty of lost people. I have to remind my team at Crossroads all the time about that. When there's like, man, you know, Pastor Matt, you don't understand. I always love hearing that. Hey, you don't, you don't understand. It's like, try me. You know, I, I, it's, it's really hard to get people to want to serve in this ministry. It's, it's really hard to, I'm like, it is hard. It's the work that God's called you to. Look, I'm like, look around. There's 70,000 people in Dubuque, at least in the greater Dubuque area. How many of them you think are worshiping on a Sunday morning? There's, there's about 330 that regularly worship at Crossroads. I think Hope Church is probably one of the biggest churches in the area. I, I don't even know what they are, maybe 1,000 folks. Let's be generous. Let's be generous and say 5,000 people are worshiping their Savior in the greater Dubuque area. That's not even 10%. The, the, the harvest is plentiful. There are, there are plenty of people that are lost and they're dying, and they don't know the Jesus that we're talking about this morning. There's plenty of them. The problem is that the laborers are few. Jesus is identifying the laborers are few. We put so much focus sometimes on the wrong things. And so I hear turf wars, and I hear people saying there's not enough people. Sure there is. You just have to go get them. You have to go reach them. And so he says, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. I love this last line because it speaks even more richly about God's sovereignty. He didn't just say, hey, get your hustle and grind on. Although there's a response that you have to make and that I have to make. But how does it start? Pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. 
Ask, ask God. And the way that I would see that fleshing out in real life is you're in the midst of that. Several of you have surrendered to vocational ministry. That's why you're at a Bible college getting training because you want to step onto the mission field. Maybe not a foreign mission field. Maybe it's a domestic one. Maybe you're going to stay here in Dubuque or God's going to send you who knows where. All I know is I've pastored in four different states. I never planned on pastoring in four different states. When I was 18, I said yes to Jesus, meaning I put my yes on the table. I said, Lord, I'll go wherever you want me to go. By the way, please don't send me to, like, Africa. And then my youth pastor like, you better be careful. He's going to give you a passion for, like, you know, Africa. I'm like, yeah, but I just, I don't like all the heat, and that's really difficult for me. And he's like, just, I'm just telling you right now, don't limit what God will do in your life. I was like, okay, fine. Lord, I'll go anywhere you want me to go, and I won't say it, but I'll think it a little bit. And, you know, he, is, he has moved me so many different times in different places. It's amazing to see what God's going to do in your life. Your five-year, you should have a five-year plan. I think it's a good thing. But your yes ought to be on the table. Because ultimately, it is the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. So what is going to happen is God is going to determine where you're going to be needed. And he is going to send you. He's going to call you. And, and if, you, if you're familiar with the scriptures, like you can either do it God's way or you can do it God's way. Those are kind of your options. Like you can, you can rebel against God. I don't know exactly how you would see determinism and how you would teach that here. But I would say you can rebel against God. And he might send a fish to swallow you, and then you're still going to do it his way anyways. I love the great psalm, he maketh me lie down in green pastures. Never thought about this. As a kid, I learned that psalm. We memorized it. It was really cute. He makes you lie down in green pastures. Though the Lord is sovereign, you're going to lie down or you're going to lie down. Like Those are your choices. To follow Jesus into the harvest is the absolute greatest honor of our life. And it's the ultimate calling that all of us, whether you're going into vocational ministry or you are going to be a stay-at-home mom and you're going to raise the next generation of Christ followers, or you're going to go into business and go be a captain of some industry, your calling is to answer the need of the harvest. And the problem is pretty easily identified. I want to share a story with you that had a profound impact in my life in the midst of uh, going to liberty. So I had all these like, things I needed to prove. And I was almost, honestly, I was almost obsessed to the point where if I could do it again, I would do it differently. But because I was such a poor student in undergrad, I felt this need to like prove to myself, like, man, I'm going to do a really good job. So I was, re I was a ridiculous student. And at the time, I was uh, an executive pastor of a really large church. I had my third daughter and my bathroom shower exploded. And I was remodeling my bathroom all while I was starting graduate school around the age of 30. And I just made a commitment to myself. I was like, I will make straight A's in graduate school. I'm going to graduate with distinction. I've never done that before. I excelled at, like, lunch and gym in you know, high school. And, you know, in college, I did really good socially. I married a pretty girl. But I, did, I cannot honestly say I'd ever given the Lord Jesus my all, my effort, and my studies. And I was determined to show myself as a workman of proof. So I worked really hard, and I did. I made all A's in graduate school, and I was, if I'm going to be honest with you, I was really proud of myself. I was really proud of myself. I was patting myself on the back, and I was like, I did a really good job. Someone else should say it, too. It made me feel better. And I listened to, I was at a pastor's conference in, uh, in Kentucky, in Independence, Kentucky, and Dr. Steve Ayers, Dr. Steve Ayers pastors the largest church in the state of Kentucky. He's also a professor at Cumberland Bible College. Um, he's, he's the real deal. He's a preacher's preacher. 
He's a big man. I stand next to him, and I'm not a small guy, and I feel dwarfed by him. He's this big personality, and he's got the whitest teeth I've ever seen at anyone. He's handsome. He's probably 50, and he just fills the whole room. He's just one of those guys, and he has this really deep voice. And so, and Kentucky had a lot of, like, tension because Southern Seminary is a very prominent seminary, at least in the Southern Baptist Convention, and other denominations will study there. It's a fantastic seminary, and they've kind of got this reform bent on how they see salvation. If you don't know what that means, it's fine. Ask your professors later. And then other people would disagree, and so there was tension amongst Kentucky churches of who's got the right salvation message, and there was fighting, and churches would split, and it was, it was difficult. It was a difficult time. It was a very polarizing thing, and Dr. Steve Ayers stands up, and he's this big old country boy from Nowhereville, Kentucky. I mean, I'm talking, there's like eight people that live in this town. I don't know how 5,000 people worship at his church, and he gets in front of us and has with this really intense look, and he goes, gentlemen, it's a real simple gospel that you've been called to. You're called to preach Jesus Christ Death, burial, resurrection, crucified on the cross, died for your sins, set them free from the grave. And we've made it way too complicated. We ain't too complicated because we've elevated the reading material so that we can issue master's degrees and doctorate degrees and that we can brag and fight about theology. But the harvest is plentiful. And he's pointing his fingers at all the pastors in the room. But the laborers are few. He goes, it's real easy to preach that sermon but when is the last time you went to your next door neighbor and shared Jesus with them? And I'm like, in the middle of that, I'm starting to cheer. And I'm like, actually, Dr. Ayers, I'm taking evangelism 525 right now. And I just don't know if you'd want to know this, but I'm making like a 99 in that class. I'm really, I'm really killing it. I'm doing, I'm doing a really good job. And just really wanted you to know I'm proud of myself. I'm, I'm saying these inside my head. I didn't say this out loud, but I thought these thoughts in my head. And in the midst of his challenge, I realized I had lived next to my neighbor, Chris, for four years. I'm, I'm, at a, I'm the number two pastor on, at the largest church in town. I'm at a prominent church with l- large influence in northern Kentucky. And as Pastor Matt had lived next to him, and I'd waved to him, and we washed cars in the driver next to each other, and I borrowed his ladder one time, and his wife has watched my kids, and my wife has watched her kids, I realized I lived next to Chris for four years. And I'd never bothered to go to my neighbor and say, hey, do you know the Lord Jesus? Pastor, pastor. See, it's, it's not that we haven't identified the problem. People ask, why are the laborers so few? I'll tell you why. It's really, it's really easy. All of us think it's someone else's job. We always think the guy next to us is going to do it. Guys, if the pastor or one of the pastors on staff of the church is not going to have the compassion that Jesus had and look at the need of the harvest and walk next door. How hard is it for us to walk next door if if a pastor is not going to walk next door and see if somebody knows the Lord Jesus? I promise the churches that God is going to send you to serve him, most of the congregants will not. And what you do in, in excess, they will do in moderation when it comes to good things. You evangelize and you make disciples and you lead Bible studies. If you do that in excess, they will do it in moderation. People follow leaders slowly. And if we do nothing, they will mirror you and likely do nothing. Or God will have to send somebody else to the mission. And you'll be like Job in the belly of the fish. Thinking, oh, I made a lot of mistakes, didn't I? See, you can do it God's way or you could do it God's way. The harvest is plentiful, but why are the laborers few? 
Why would they be so few? It made sense when Jesus preached this text, right? There's not a lot of disciples yet on planet Earth at this time. You know, if, and if you're familiar with John 6, he kind of throws down some really hard truth, and it gets a little bit weird because they don't really understand when he talks about eating my body and drinking my blood, and it's, the crowds start to dwindle. Do you know the story? And they dwindle, and they dwindle. And he finally looks at the disciples, like, you guys going to leave too? And then Peter's like, where would we go? Who would we follow if not you? There's not a lot of disciples. So I, I, I get it. I get it here. I get why Jesus says that. But, you know, Christianity right now, I think you can go to a site like adherence.org, and it usually has a really tight number. And there's like a billion people on this planet that proclaim Jesus. Do you know the church has more financial resources right now in this season than it ever has had? Every preacher just became a TV preacher during COVID. We all became televangelists. We've, we, for a small monthly fee, I can stream worldwide the messages from Crossroads Church. We can proclaim the gospel worldwide. We've never had more technology. We've never had more opportunity. And we've never had more people than ever. We're at the, we're at the peak. And I think that this passage might apply now, even on a higher level of intensity as when Jesus first said it. And it's because it makes me ask the question, why are there so few laborers? Why are there so few? We got a lot of people that have been baptized. There's a lot of church members out there. There's, there's a lot of folks that would still check on a box if they're filling out an application. And they say, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. But I, don't, I don't think we have a, a, as much of a proclamation problem. I think we've got enough boots on the ground. I think we have a labor shortage because everybody thinks it's somebody else's job. And I think some of that is the work of the enemy. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So if he can convince you and steal your joy and rob your joy, convince you that you're not smart enough, you're not worthy, we know that you're, you know, you've got that sin issue that you've, you've, you've hidden. And if you, man, if you start speaking out and living out for Jesus and if you start ministering, Man, you know, you're, they're going to find out, and you're a sorry dog. And so we start believing that stuff. We think, I can't, I can't do it. I don't know enough. I don't have enough knowledge. You know, maybe, maybe that should just be the, you know, the, the team captain, this is the class president, professors. Like, they're the ones that should handle it. Surely, surely not me. And I think about, I've had those thoughts too. And then I read the scriptures, and like, Jesus didn't pick who's who to serve his kingdom. He typically used the broken messed up people that I can relate to, a C student like me can relate to. And I think he used those people because ultimately God's like, yeah, you're not going to be able to get any glory. There's no way you can take credit for that. And that's okay. It's not about, it's not about you and me. It's about glorifying Jesus. And so I would say that Jesus had compassion for the lost. It's very clear to us. I don't think the church has a compassion problem. In verse 37, Jesus identifies the problem. I don't think that we're unaware of the problem. Jesus offers the solution. He says, pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Verse 38. Ask him to send more workers onto the field. So that's what I'm going to do today is, as I wrap up and I get ready to pray you guys out. I'm going to ask God the Father to do something in your heart and your life that extends beyond the walls of your dormitory. Do not listen to me. Do not wait until you're 25 or 30 or 37 or until you have certain letters behind your name to start serving King Jesus now. The greatest mistake I made as an undergrad is I said, I'm not going to get involved in a local church. I'm not going to get involved in a local church. I'm here. I'm in my studious years. I'm going to study. 
It's amazing how much more time I had when I shifted my focus. All of a sudden, I was able to make good grades and serve in my local church. My first two years, I didn't do it. You ought to get involved in a local church. It doesn't have to be mine. I'd be honored to have you, but you ought to be serving somewhere. You ought, or, at the very least, you ought to be, if there's, I'm sure there's campus ministries here and, and ministry opportunities here. Do not wait until you're, on, you're in your profession one day and say, okay, well, then I'll start doing it. I hear that excuse all the time from people. Pastor, we, we would love to give to the mission, but, you know, right now we just got a lot of, we got a lot of debt, and we're going to, you know, we're going to, the Lord doesn't like that, so we're going to take care of that. And then one day when I make $100,000 a year, I will, we will give to the mission of Jesus. I think you ought to be a biblical tither now. Hey, Pastor, we're, you know, we're just, it's a crazy season, you know what I'm saying? It's just nuts. I can't, I just, it's crazy, and, you know, we just don't have time to love people in this season. We're just going to be in and out, and then one day, I think, I think you ought to be aware of what season you're in. There is Jesus, and Paul even says, in season, out of season, be wise. You may have times where there's a lot on your plate, and you do have to scale back. But if you're not careful, that'll become five years, and your life will start passing like that. And you'll realize, boy, I just spent a decade out of community. I hear that all the time. This every, every single time, every time. I know this every time. You can, this is anecdotal evidence, but you can test this theory that I have. Every time someone pulls out a biblical community, Every time there's something wrong, every time. Either someone's offended them in a group and there's not reconciliation, or a lot of times there's issues in their marriage and they don't want it to be exposed, which is the opposite of the church's job. The whole idea of being in a community group or a Bible study or whatever you call it here, a cell group, D group, Sunday school class, the whole point of doing that is so that the brothers and sisters of Jesus can lean on one another because this is a hard mission that Jesus has called us to. It's, it's difficult, and part of the, the point of the church is so that you and I sharpen one another. James, I think it's chapter 3, says if you, you confess your sins to one another, like there's healing that comes from that. Every time someone pulls out a community, there's, a, there's an issue in their life. So if you're in my community group, I'm coming after you if I see you stop showing up. Is that because I want to browbeat you to Jesus? No, because I know something's wrong. Because the mission of Jesus is to keep our eyes transfixed on him and through that connection, because it's through God's sovereignty, it's through the power of the Father, he's going to send you. And he'll send you into the mess and the broken and the hurting. Sometimes it's easy to get insulated. We talk about it all the time. We're at the, it's like we go to the fort. The crossroads can be the fort for a lot of people, and it's very insulated. And I do, I, I do think there's times where the saints need to gather, and they need to rub off on one another. But it's to be fueled and energized and challenged so that where you work, live, and play, you see that as the crowds that are white for harvest or great, great need for harvest. Two, two things, and I'll, I'll pray you guys out. Why are the, why are the workers so few? Because everyone thinks it's somebody else's job. We, we, can, we can change that right now. You could, you could change that in this room right now. You can make a declaration of the Lord Jesus, and you could say, not on my watch. Not on my watch am I going to be someone who passes the buck to the next guy. Not in my generation. You know, maybe other generations did that, Lord, but not in my watch. In my generation, in my time, I will stand for the Lord, whether I'm a Bible college major going to go on staff somewhere at a church or pastor at a church, or whether you're going to go be a businessman or woman, or you're going to raise the next generation. You could declare, and you just have to decide to respond to the gospel. Not on my watch. I won't, I won't let it happen, not in my family. Me and my house are going to serve the Lord, and that means we're going to go to our neighbor, 
We're going to have compassion the way that Jesus had compassion. You can declare Jesus as Lord every day of your life, and it don't have to be at a church. I'll tell you right now, you know what I need at Crossroads? I need some godly people to be involved in soccer. I hope you guys become a big deal and go, go take over the soccer leagues and tell them to stop having games on Sunday morning. Stop competing with the Lord Jesus' time. Keep the Sabbath holy. So I want you to become a big deal, stay in the butte. I want you to go run the soccer league, and I want you to shut that down and make all the games on Saturday. I need some of you who are passionate about volleyball and basketball. You need to become city commissioners. You need to join economic development boards. You, need to, you ought to run for mayor. I'll vote for you. Run for mayor, and you shut that stuff down. We're not going to compete on Sunday anymore because it's the Sabbath. We're going to honor. We're going to keep it holy. You don't have to be on church staff. In fact, some of you shouldn't be. Because God's given you different skills and passions and talents and business acumen, and you're to use it for his kingdom in ways that honors him, and it allows the church to do what it does, which is proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's the greatest honor any of us could ever be called to is to be mission carriers for Jesus. Can I pray for you? Would you bow your head close your eyes? Lord, I don't know who needed to hear this message today. My prayer is that in everyone's hearts, they were just saying, amen, praise the Lord. But we're all human, Father. And there's so many times that we think it's somebody else's job. He's more qualified. She's more articulate. I, I, don't, you know, I, I don't have the confidence to do this. I just want to study in silence and Maybe just let, you know, let my life song sing for you. And God, I know that that's easy for us to think this way. Not everyone's going to be called to be on the platform and have a microphone or pick up a guitar or a violin and make beautiful music. Like, Lord, I know that's not what you called each and every one to. But where they work, they live, and they play, you have given them a mission field. Even if their greatest mission is going to be to lead the children that they're going to have one day to the Lord, let them be so bold to live that on their house. I pray you do rise them in their businesses and make them captains of industry and honor you, you the whole way through that, God, so that they can declare your name to people that are broken and they're hurting and they're lost and they need the love of God. I don't, I don't understand your sovereign will, Lord. I don't fully understand why some say yes and why some don't. But, Lord, may we be a people that continues to nominate them and you continue to elect them. And let us be the voice that carries your word the way that Paul tells us in Romans 10. May you make this class, these students, so bold. If you change the world with 12, I'm excited to see what you could do with a room like this. Bless them. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Chapel Messages podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit Emmaus.edu partner.